Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kenneth Pienta. He's a professor at John Hopkins School of Medicine. He's part of the urology, oncology, pharmacology, and molecular uh, department or area. We're going to talk about uh, tumor microenvironments, looks like specifically as they relate to uh, prostate cancer metastases and possibly primary tumors. So, Kenneth, thanks for coming. Uh, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your, your research. Well, my research centers around the fact that, unfortunately, uh, 10 million people a year around the world die of cancer. And cancer kills people because it uh, spreads from wherever it starts to other places in the body, a process that we all call metastasis. And once cancer metastasizes from its primary spot, uh, for example, prostate cancer likes to go to lymph nodes and the bones, and colon cancer likes to go to the liver, then once that happens and you can't cure people by surgery or primary radiation, cancer becomes at that point incurable um, for the vast majority of people. So about 20 million people a year get diagnosed with cancer around the world. Half of them are cured because we find that cancer before it spreads. But once it spreads, we're you know treating with hormones or chemotherapy or immunotherapy, trying to slow it down. And for some men and women, we do slow it down. But eventually, um, almost everyone with metastatic cancer dies of their disease. Uh, it's a really sobering statistic, you know, when you think 10 million people a year are dying of cancer. So my work in, in my laboratory for the last 30 years has been really focused on, on understanding why uh, cancer is resistant to therapy and um, how and why and when it spreads from the primary tumor. So are you focused on prostate cancer or multiple cancers or what, what's your focus? Yeah, so my focus has always been up until the last few years is all, has been prostate cancer and understanding how prostate cancer cells grow in the prostate and then escape the prostate and spread throughout the body. And then um, about uh, 10 years ago, uh, to understand that, we started thinking about prostate cancer in terms of uh, ecology, basically, trying to understand why, how well, what other sciences we could learn about cancer from. And, you know, one of the things we thought about was how much when cancer spreads, it's like an invasive species into a new environment, just like zebra mussels invading the Great Lakes and, you know, by hitchhiking on ships. So we turned to the field of ecology and evolutionary ecology to really understand cancer. And so we became cancer ecologists, uh, really about five years ago, uh, and have been applying the principles of evolution and ecology to 
understand prostate cancer metastasis and now uh, really metastasis for and resistance for all cancers. So we we still use prostate as our primary uh, model, so to speak, uh, but we're thinking about this, uh, how to cure all kinds of cancers at this point. So are you looking at the microenvironment to the primary tumor or the metastases or both? And what, yes. what are you looking for? Yeah, so what we've discovered, uh, we were always very interested in understanding how cancer cells interact with their uh, local tumor microenvironment. And we've, uh, for example, uh, everybody thinks of, you know, when they see a tumor uh, that it's, you know, a bunch of cancer cells. Well, it is a bunch of cancer cells, billions of them, uh, but it's also uh, billions of your normal host cell, body cells, uh, the cells that are supporting the cancer to grow, you know, the the blood vessels, um, the macrophages that invade to initially try and fight the tumor, but then get co-opted to help it grow, uh, the stromal cells that support uh, the, the the cancer cells to grow faster. So we've always been very, very interested in uh, how the body that not only uh, supports uh, cancer uh, growth, but also responds to it and sometimes making it, uh, you know, killing it off and sometimes making it worse. A few years ago, while we were studying the microenvironment of the cancers and, and uh, to do that, we were making artificial sort of cancer on a chip uh, in the lab. We discovered a special form of, of, of cancer called the, that we call the polyaneuploid cancer cell. It's, uh, it's really a state that cancer cells go through uh, when they're subjected to stress, uh, like in the primary tumor, low oxygen, uh, when the cancers outstrip their blood supply, or in the metastatic cancers, when you treat with, for example, chemotherapy, we found that the majority of cells die, but there's a subset of cells that are able to double their DNA, basically, get stronger, and then they basically hibernate while the stress is around, uh, basically like a sleeping bear. And, and then they wait till the chemotherapy is gone, and then they repo- you know, repopulate the tumor. They give birth to a bunch of new resistant cancer cells. And we call that hibernating bear state the, uh, the polyaneuploid cancer cell. And we think this cell is actually, this cell type is explains uh, resistance and why we haven't been able to cure cancer up, up until this point. It also, we found out even though they're hibernating, they like to move around a lot. And um, we think these are the, the cells that actually spread around the body, move around the body and cause cancer spread. So over the last few Wait, years- what, what, what kind of cells are these? What do you mean? Well, the, so we call them uh, polyaneuploid cancer cells. They're they're uh, basically a, a, a cancer cell state. There are the cells it have a program in them that allows them to basically undergo whole genome doubling. So they double their DNA, which allows the, gives them more DNA to work with to find mut- resistance mutations. And then while they're doing that, they uh, they stop proliferating. Uh, and when you stop proliferating or stop dividing, chemotherapy can't kill the cell. Uh, it, that's Chemotherapy works by killing proliferating cells. 
Uh, that's why your hair falls out when you get chemotherapy. It's your because your hair follicles are turning over. Go ahead. Are you saying cancer cells in response to chemo, cancer cells have been observed to go into this non-dividing state? Even you know it's uh, metabolically active, probably, but yes, biologically and, active. But they're not dividing, and they are they waiting it out. Yeah, they're once waiting. The chemo's done, and they come back. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and that's what we've uh, documented now. And uh, so we're working very hard to uh, now figure out ways to target these, uh, you know, sort of sleeping bears, so, uh, so to speak. But this is, we think this is a universal mechanism of resistance, which we've just now sort of described for the world. And, and we're telling all our colleagues about and really trying to um, tell the world about these. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How does uh, how do metastases occur? I thought that uh, extracellular vesicles are sent out by cancer cells, and that starts kind of the the feathering of the nest or the niche construction. Uh, but what's your understanding? How does how do metastases start and form? So what you're referring to is, I think, Dave Lydon's work is saying that you know the, we, you have a release of extracellular vesicles from tumors, which then spread throughout the body, and they can find a place uh, like, for example, for prostate cancer in the bone where they set up a pre-metastatic niche. And, um, you know, I think that's a fascinating um, idea. Uh, it really is interesting when you think about, we can talk about extracellular vesicles for a long time because, you know, really what they are is cellular garbage. And so you have to think about, you know, uh, cancer cells don't have purpose. Cells don't have purpose. So whatever they're getting rid of by through an extracellular vesicle is really, why are they getting rid of it? Well, they're getting rid of it because there's too much of it or it's harmful to themselves. It's their garbage. I mean, if you look at how extracellular vesicles uh, came into being, you know, but going back through evolution, it's really they were formed, they were there to get rid of uh, a, a unicellular organism's garbage. So you have to think about that in terms of why is a cancer cell getting rid of that? And then what's the ability of those cells, you know, of those extracellular vesicles to go around the body? Where would they land and why? And then once they've done that, there's no way that a pre-metastatic niche can actually communicate with the, pri the primary cancer to say, come here, right? Because the, just the blood flow circuit doesn't allow that because if you're, let's say you're a pre-metastatic niche in the bone uh, and you wanted to say, okay, I'm ready for a metastasis to come there. Well, if it sends its own extracellular vesicles back out into the blood, 
They, they're in the venous blood supply. They have to go back through uh, the heart, through the lungs, into the arterial blood supply, and then find their way back to a primary tumor. That primary tumor may say, those cells may say, oh, I like this new EV that's here, but it has no reason to, go, it doesn't know where it came from. So then you have these cells that are going to leave the primary tumor. And lots of cells, there are three kinds of cells basically that can leave a primary tumor. There's the, the ones that sort of drop into the circulation by accident. We think that those um, will circulate around, but 99.9% of them are going to die. I mean, if you think about, if, if you draw a, a cancer patient's blood and you find one cell in you know, a, a tube of blood, uh, or five cells in a tube of blood in a milliliter of blood, that means at any given time, randomly, that patient has 5,000 circulating tumor cells. And if you do the math of uh, how fast they clear, basically a cancer, believe it or not, is putting out a million uh, circulating tumor cells a day. So we all know that the, you know, the vast majority of those are dead, going to die. So um, do you think they're shedding, they're shedding so, cells or what do you mean putting out? Well, they're shedding off. I mean, the only, and so there's, there's three kinds of cells that get shed. One, one type are these cells that are just shed by accident. They have no chance of survival. And then uh, the cancer field knows that there's, that some cancer cells can undergo what's called an epithelial to mesenchymal transition or an EMT. And those cells are thought to be able to maybe actually crawl out of a primary tumor and uh, get into the circulation and spread and maybe cause a metastasis. And then even more rare, now we believe that these polyinuploid cancer cells, these special cells, because they're highly motile, they can, they can walk out. They're already hibernating, so they can survive uh, the circulation, uh, and, and then they can invade at a pre-metastatic niche site or somewhere else, and then they stay dormant for up to you know, multiple years. Uh, we all know that cancer cells appear that spread, just like any invasive species, uh, appear to be dormant for, for a long time. And so you have to have a cell that is not only motile, but also hibernating, so to speak. So that's why we think these um, polyaneuploid cancer cells may be actually the most important cells uh, in all of cancer to understand them, because they're the ones that can get out and as well as hibernate. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But ha again, how do you think a, uh, a niche construction, how do you think a metastasis starts and how do you think it, uh, it proceeds? What do you think of the mechanisms? So you mean once it's at the distant organ? Yeah, like, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a primary tumor of some sort in some organ. Yep. How does it start showing up in other organs and why is it preferential? You know, like you mentioned, I believe uh, colon cancer is more preferential to the liver, prostate more preferential to bone, and I forget where else, but why would there be a preferential metastasis site and how does it form? 
Well, the bottom line is, is no one actually knows this, this concept of a pre-metastatic niche may, which has never been shown in a human, may be uh, a way that that happens. It certainly might, it, you know, we've seen it happen in mice. We know that prostate cells actually express a receptor that is normally found on uh, your white blood cells. Uh, that, you know, white blood cells, uh, you know, the cells that fight infection, traffic to and from the bone marrow all the time as part of uh, their life cycle. And they have a receptor on them called CXCR4. And prostate cancer cells have that same receptor. Why, we don't know. But we've actually documented that uh, a prostate cancer cell that's circulating gets to the bone and um, normally a white blood cell that's going through the bone marrow needs to park. And how does it know to park there? Well, it has this receptor CXCR4 and the, the, the cytokine that attracts CXCR4 is called stromal derived factor one or SDF1. And so there's a lo- local microgradient that tells the white blood cell to say, oh, I'm in the bone. And it's, it basically is attracted and it parks on an, on an osteoblast, uh, which is a bone cell. And so it turns out a, a prostate cancer cell does the same thing. It's going by through the bloodstream. It happens to see a, a local gradient of SDF1. And we've actually shown that a, a cancer cell comes in and actually knocks a white blood cell right off its parking spot. Uh, so we think that's how they initially get there. And then they set up shop and they're dormant for uh, uh, some amount of time. And then as they acclimate to the new environment, they start, they say, oh, I'm not stressed anymore. And they start to proliferate. As they proliferate, they remodel their local environment and create a, through niche construction, as you say, uh, and as we've written about, creates an environment that is favorable for them to grow by attracting new blood vessels, attracting tumor-associated macrophages that help them grow and secrete enzymes that break down the local environment. And they basically create their own little cancer swamp and, and their own little niche to grow in until it's big enough that we actually can see it. But by the time we can see it, it's already a billion cells, which is a you know, if you look at, you know, sort of your, the tip of your thumbnail, that's about a centimeter, you know, by a centimeter by a centimeter, um, or half inch by half inch by half inch, that represents a billion cancer cells. And that's Hmm. when we first can see a cancer by imaging. Yeah, it's far along. So what, um, have you looked at the microenvironment of primary tumors versus metastases? And if so, what's, what's the observable differences? So th- that's a great question. The, the microenvironment is always um, driven by, first by it's the organ it's sitting in. So, you know, the, for example, the prostate is full of glands and uh, that are, uh, you know, helping secrete things into the, the urinary tract. And so you have all those cells that were in there defining a microenvironment. There's also this concept that most organs are trying to suppress uh, cancer growth. So generally, primary cancers grow much slower than metastatic cancers. So there's something about the primary 
micro, you know, primary microenvironment that is uh, making cells grow slower. So most people think, for example, if you have a prostate cancer or a breast cancer or colon cancer, it's been there for years before you, it gets a chance to be big enough to be a problem. Whereas once that cancer escapes uh, and goes somewhere else, uh, there, it, it, that control is gone. And so you see that metastases grow much faster than primary tumors do. But nobody quite knows why that is. So when there's a resection, uh, when someone has cancer, do you, uh, I mean, what's, what's targeted? Is it usually the primary tumor, a particular metastasis that's targeted or both? And if both are targeted, you know, does, has there been comparative histology on primary versus metastases? Yeah, so so generally when you're uh you only take a primary tumor out, the the basic feeling is that once you have a met- metastasis, uh you can treat that with uh sometimes with radiation, but you really don't take that tumor out because you're generally considered not curable at that point. And so from that standpoint, we don't know a lot about what happens uh, if you look at the microenvironment metastasis versus a primary, the the whole way you can cure a primary cancer is because you get the whole cancer out. Once the cancer spreads, it's it, the for whatever reason it's resistant to to therapy, and generally you don't only get one metastasis; you get multiple ones. So taking them out by surgery isn't something that's normally done. So if someone has a metastasis, it's not usually one that's multiple? Generally, yes. And the thought is, what, there's no point in taking them out? Or is it too invasive and destructive? Or what's the reasoning why they wouldn't take them out? Uh, They generally don't take them. We don't take them out because we know that's not going to cure the patient. And so you're just putting them through unnecessary surgeries. Yeah, but a lot of chemo, I mean you know, seems to lengthen life for maybe a few weeks or a month or so, yet that's, that's given. So why would that be given, but surgery is not done? Uh, because uh, surgery, uh, you, once it's invasive, once you do it, you have to give people time to recover where the, while the cancer is growing in other places. So the problem that you have is that if you take, take it out, one spot out, uh, knowing that that's not going to cure somebody, what, by the time they heal, the cancer's been growing uncontrollably in other places. Mm. So is there, uh, so it's very rare to get, again, a, a comparison of primary versus metastases. I mean, how would that occur? Uh, well, we do it, a, do we, do it through, we do it through biopsies. And, and so we do compare, but we have not been able to say how necessarily how a metastatic tumor microenvironment different from a primary, except when we look at a metastatic micro and, uh, microenvironment, the host cells that are there are much more, there are many more of the cell types that support cancer growth compared to the primary. Is that, so does that correlate to its aggressiveness? Are metastases yeah. typically a lot more aggressive and fast growing than the primary tumors? Yes, they are. I don't know if this is an elementary question or not, but are metastases always the same type of cell as the primary or can cancer arise in, let's say, let's say you start out with, uh, you know, colon cancer. Will you separately get liver cancer 
from liver no. cells or there'll be colon cells that are in the liver that are metastasizing? That's a great question. And, and we always identify a metastatic cell by the primary it comes from. So even though a prostate cancer cell goes to the bone, it's not bone cancer at that point, it's prostate cancer that has spread to the bone. And that's how we refer to it. And prostate cancer um, that has spread to the bone is still prostate cancer and it acts very differently than a cancer that developed first in the bone, you know, true bone cancer. Same thing with colon cancer uh, that is spread to the liver. It's still metastatic colon cancer and acts very differently than primary liver cancer. Gotcha. So how do you characterize the microenvironment? What, is, what are some factors that, uh, that tell you there's a unique microenvironment to begin with? And again, what's been observed in the microenvironment? So characterize the, the microenvironment of any cancer by uh, the cell types that are there. And, you know, any, any cancer, any microenvironment has, you know, 30 different cell types from the host that are also there Inter, you know, interacting with the cancer cells. And so we have to quantitate or, you know, we keep track of the different kinds of cells that are there and how they're changing over time. And, you know, again, depending on where the, the cancer cell lands and grows, it's going to uh, have different sort of percentages of those cell types. And we uh, basically, but it's complicated, right? There's, there's 30 different cell types there, and those percentages are going to vary. Uh, one of the major ones that uh, is always very present are what we call tumor-associated macrophages. Macrophages are uh, the cells that, you know, when you cut yourself, they, they come in and they're white blood cells that clean it up, clean up the wound and, and get rid of any, you know, bacteria and things like that. And they basically scar the wound. Well, mm. macrophages, uh, cancer cells fool those macrophages into thinking there's a, a wound. That's why sometimes we call cancers uh, wounds that don't heal. Mm. It's because the cancers are constantly breaking down the environment. The macrophages come in to try and clean it up. And to clean it up, they actually feed the cancer cells more things to, that help them grow faster and better. So it's this vicious cycle uh, that occurs and, uh, of the cancer just keeps proliferating. It attracts more of these uh, tumor-associated macrophages, which are normally a good thing, but the cancer turns them to, into a bad thing because they basically help the cancer grow faster. And we've shown in prostate cancer that up to 50% of a tumor mass is actually these macrophages. Really? So there's a tremendous accumulation of them. Um, what do the macrophages do when they're in such large numbers? I mean, do they cause like cytokine storms or like, what do they do? Do they hang out in the uh, microenvironment of a tumor? Like what, what, do, what do they do? Well, they do a lot of things. Um, so for example, they secrete uh, what are called matrix metalloproteinases, which are the enzymes that break down uh, tissue. So they basically lyse your tissue and liquefy it and make it easier for the cancer cells to grow. They also, you know, most people know about the fact that cancer cells like they need new blood vessels to grow. And the major uh, growth factor for blood vessels is 
called VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. And many people know about that because of the drug called Avastin, which targets that, that growth factor. Well, macrophages are actually the main source. They're the ones secreting the VEGF, uh, not the cancer cells. The cancer cells bring in the macrophages to secrete the VEGF. The macrophages also um, secrete a, a wide variety of other growth factors that feed the cancer cells to grow better. And it brings up this fascinating point uh, that, uh, you know, we've made many times, but, you know, a lot of people wonder what, why, how does cancer kill somebody? And, uh, you know, I get that asked, get, that's asked of me all the time. And you can, people think, oh, you just die of liver failure or kidney failure, but cancer doesn't kill you by a, a sort of mechanical obstruction. I mean, you can take over 90% of your liver and you still can live just fine. What cancer does is, is it grows in various places and the body's response to it, like with macrophages and other cells, is it releases, they are releasing all these bad growth factors and cytokines and chemokines and substances that basically lead to things like the wasting syndrome we see in cancer, the cachexia syndrome, uh, leads to blood clots that, you know, get into the lungs and kill people. And we sort of, so because we refer to, you know, these growing cancers as as swamps of cancer, um, we've termed that swamp gas. It's basically the fact that your, your, your own body in trying to fight the cancer or help the cancer grow ends up poisoning the patient. So it's basically swamp gas that kills somebody. Hmm. What could be done then? If you look at cancer in this new way, is there anything that can be done to target the microenvironment, local injection of something? Again, is there a, you know, is there a border to the microenvironment, not necessarily a membrane or anything, but what constitutes the environment and exterior to the environment and, you know, what could be done? So, you know, I think we and, and certainly others are taking three different approaches. One approach that we're actively testing is how, to st- uh, how, how can we basically stop those macrophages from getting into the tumor microenvironment at all? Or if they're there, how can we turn them off? Uh, because that's a, a major, would be a major step forward in controlling the cancer and controlling sort of the production of, of swamp gas that's going to kill somebody. The second thing we, we people are working on is to say, well, uh, in addition to any therapies that might kill cancer cells, can we actually put in uh, therapies that inhibit those actual uh, poisons that are causing like wasting syndrome? So you can actually treat the wasting syndrome and instead of directly, instead of just the, the cancer. And, the, and then the third thing we're doing is, is because we think those polyaneuploid cancer cells are so central to the growth of these tumors uh, within the tumor microenvironment, we're developing strategies to directly target those. All right. So the only thing you see is to, to keep the macrophages out. Uh, what percentage of the total available available macrophages could be in the vicinity of uh, of various metastases? Any guesses? Is it a small amount? Of, you know, not really noticeable. Is it significant? Well, it's significant to the the tumor. 
Um, but your body can right. make more macrophages uh, all the time. Um, they're, they're derived from uh, circulating monocytes, which are about 5% of your white blood cell, total white blood cell count. So they're, at any given time, there's millions and millions of monocytes circulating through your body, getting recruited to become macrophages. So it's almost irrelevant uh, what percent. What we have to do is either keep them out or inactivate them when they get there. Yeah, I was just wondering if it was a significant amount, but you know, you're saying it's not, so I understand. Well, but at the same time, within a tumor, there's millions of them. Well, what I mean, when someone has a cut or a wound, how many macrophages accumulate in an area? I know it's variable, but you know, is it anywhere near this amount, or is this uh, non-typical this amount? Uh, it's not. There are certainly when you cut yourself, there are thousands of macrophages that come in. Versus when you have a tumor, it's you, you know millions of them. Oh, okay. So it's order several orders of magnitude higher. Right. Uh, what about in primaries? Is this the same case, or is this more in metastases? There's a huge um, proliferation of the macrophages. Yeah, it seems to be more prevalent in the metastases. Quite frankly, is it counterintuitive to? selectively immunosuppress someone with metastatic cancer? Would that help them if it was done in the right way? Well, immunosuppress is a, is a, a sort of a loaded term, right? Because what you're trying to do, uh, the immune system, basically there are many components to it. And the most important part of um, fighting cancer from an immune system standpoint are, are you need two multiple different cell types, but generally it's you're trying to have what are called cytotoxic T cells uh, be present to basically attack the tumor. And those cytotoxic T cells are actually supported by a different kind of macrophage called an M1 macrophage. So you want those kinds. You don't want the M2 macrophages, which are part of the immune system, or a different kind of T cell called a, T, uh, a helper T cell. So the problem we have when we immunosuppress someone is you suppress everything. We don't have selective ways to just suppress the, the macrophages, but keep the cytotoxic T cells working. Uh-oh. So, so the, it would be great if we could selectively do that, but we can't selectively do that. And the whole idea of immunotherapy right now with checkpoint inhibitors uh, that are approved for therapy is that they're selectively trying to turn on those cells called the cytotoxic T cells. Okay. That's very helpful. Um, Well, like for instance, you know, is the, is the pattern of, of blood supply to a metastasis very different from a, uh, you know, from a primary tumor? Is that just because of the, you know, it's in the capsule of let's say the liver, which has tremendous blood supply, or it just happens to be in an organ that, again, has a very different type of blood supply. You know, is there, are there any other hallmarks of metastases versus primaries that really jump out in addition to these, uh, these T-cell proliferations? Well, they're, uh, they're macrophage proliferations. Um, oh, sorry, macrophage, macrophage. Sorry. Yeah, not really. Um, again, it's very organ dependent, and there's no sort of universal things that we can say, say about, you know, in general metastases versus primaries, except uh, that, again, just like in ecology, when you have a, an invasive species that gets into a new environment, 
why does it take over? Well, it takes over because for some reason there, there it, it not only is it more permissive to live there, there's no like natural predators. So we think that the primary organ that a cancer grows in, had there, it's controlling the cancer to some extent for a long time. And that's probably because these things like cytotoxic T cells and M1 macrophages are around to stop the tumor and slow it down. And once the cancer gets to a new place, you don't see those same T cells and good macrophages. You only see the bad kind. And it, it, it's again, it's because the cancer is invaded to a new place that doesn't wreck, you know, does it, the natural defenders aren't there in place to keep it from growing so fast. I don't know how else to describe that, though. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. You know, I mean, not not everything is understood, not even close. So yeah. I just figured I'd ask if, uh, you know, anything else was observed. Um, you said there's uh, many different cell types. So I've, I've heard tumors are very heterogeneous, but what are the types of heterogeneity that, that have been observed? So cell type, um, epigenetic marks of the different cell types, uh, mutations. I mean, what are the, when people say heterogeneity, what is that comprised of? Well, um, it's, it's heterogeneity is uh, comprised of, first of all, cancer cells, as they, you know, mutate, they're creating lots of different kinds of clones. Um, so there's tumor cell heterogeneity, where you, you know, in a, within a billion cancer cells, they, you can tell they came from sort of the same parent, but uh, just like your children, they all look slightly different. And some of them are, you know, better at sprinting and some of them are better at, at football and some of them are better at, you know, art. Uh, they, they have different abilities to how and how fast they grow and, um, and what they secrete and how they help. Uh, some are better at invading, some aren't uh, than others. So there's all that tumor cell heterogeneity. And then you have the host cell, you know, heterogeneity. It's all the different white blood cells, uh, the T cells, the macrophages, the dendritic cells, neutrophils, basophils, et cetera, that are coming through and either helping the tumor or not. And then you have the fibroblast, the stroma, the fibroblasts that, you know, organs are built off of that are sort of, sort of the base cells. Then you have the organ cells themselves, you know, like the prostate cancer duct cells or a liver cancer, the, you know, a liver cell that's, you know, making, uh, filtering the blood, those, you know, are going to react differently to uh, different, uh, the cancer growing and reforming that environment. So literally, there are about 30 cell types at any given time that are going to be present in different amounts and doing different things, uh, depending on what uh, microenvironment you're, you're in. Yeah, I, I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister, researcher and she talked about pancreatic tumors and they looked and they found a microbiome on the pancreas and they found different microbiomes localized around pancreatic tumors. Do you know of any anyone studying the microbiome of the various cancers that you're looking at and if it's different of uh, primary versus you know the metastases? I would think it would be. Yeah, you know, microbiomes um the microbiome and microbiota is is a fascinating a subject. I mean, really, what you're talking about is the 
the bacteria that are also living in that environment. And of course, uh, for the prostate and bladder and kidney, you have, you know, access to a different sort of microbiome than is it present in the colon or small intestine or the gut or, or the mouth. And uh, what's also interesting there is in addition to how those bacteria might be affecting primary growth, uh, it's been shown now uh, in multiple studies that those bacteria metabolize drugs uh, like chemotherapies and change how effective a chemotherapy is for a given person based on the bacteria's ability to break down that drug, so to speak. So uh, the whole idea of how your microbiome affects your ability to uh, respond and fight the cancer is is really uh, a huge area, as well as how the microbiome informs uh, and changes your own T cells and your ability to fight infections as well as foreign foreign invaders like cancer cells. Okay. So um, any hypotheses that you're testing right now that you think in the next year or two, you're going to get some insight into anything close in terms of knowledge expansion? Yeah. Well, again, for us, uh, we, we believe that the key to curing cancer lies in uh, killing these special uh, cancer cells, these special polyaneuploid cancer cells, uh, because we believe they're the main mediators of resistance and metastasis. And so we're spending all of our energy um, really designing new, n- new ways to think about how to kill those cells. Very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Probably to my website, KennethJPienta.com. Uh, okay. And Pienta is P-I-E-N-T-A. Right. Okay. Very good. All uh, right. Ken, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Super. Thank you, Rich. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.